This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. Welcome to episode 72. Scott O'Connor is the author of the novella Among Wolves and the novels Untouchable and Half World. He's been awarded the Barnes and Noble Discover Great New Writers Award and his stories have been shortlisted for the Sunday Times EFG Story Prize and cited as distinguished in Best American Short Stories. Additional work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Ziziva, The Rattling Wall, VLAC, and the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm really, really excited to share Scott with you because he happens to be my own writing teacher. He teaches the fantastic novel writing workshop that happens in my house on Tuesday nights. So I get to come home and a whole writing class shows up in my house, which is a pretty big treat. And as from this conversation, I'm sure you'll see why. I would love uh, to hear your thoughts on that. And I have another request to ask everybody, which is, I have a little survey, don't groan, but I have a little survey. We've been doing this show for a year and a half, and I want to make sure that we're serving you as best as we can. So if you would please, please, please go to secretlibrarypodcast.com slash survey and share your thoughts. Um, We're thinking about some new ideas and ways we can make the show even better. And I'd love to know what you think. So secretlibrarypodcast.com slash survey. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, Scott. Thanks for coming on. Hey, Caroline. Thanks for having me. So this is an interesting thing that that people may not know that I actually get to see Scott very regularly and Scott is teaching a novel class, which I am taking. So this is possibly the greatest deal ever, which is every Tuesday, a novel class appears in my dining room and, and then they go home and all I have to do is sit in my house and I get to take a novel class. It's amazing. Right. It's like a very peaceful invasion once a week. It is. It's a very pro writing kind of constructive it's like a sit-in for writing. Yeah, and everyone's pretty well behaved. I can see where it could go sideways with a, you know, a different group of people just trashing your place, but this is a well-behaved. <laughs> I've sated them with popcorn, so I usually make popcorn. That seems to keep them very calm. Yeah, that's but... right. It seems like <laughs> there's some sort of antihistamine in the popcorn or something that makes everyone a little, a little sleepy. Yeah, don't tell them I'm drugging the popcorn, but... We've been having these conversations about really getting serious about writing a novel. And so as we were having these conversations every week, I'm like, we need to record some of this stuff because it's very useful. And I keep telling people like, hey, this is what I've been talking about in my novel class. And I was like, you know what, Scott, you need to come on the show. So this way I get to give away my teaching. <laughs> what you're saying? And people can listen to it. No, there's, there's so much information, though. I feel like... You know, you're, I've yet to have a question where you're like, you know what, I haven't thought of anything for that. So we're not, we're not going to talk about that. Um, but one of the things is everybody in the class, I would say, I think everybody, with the exception of one person, is on the first draft of a novel. One person is on the second. So we've been talking a lot about things to think about. And this is something we've explored a little bit in this show before, but we've gotten more into like a formal way to keep track of your thoughts as you're going through a first draft and be able to continue on without just going around and around in a circle and refixing the same thing over and over again. Yeah, for me, and I, I think for many writers, one of the big challenges of a first draft where you're really discovering what this novel is or isn't as you move along is the temptation or maybe the compulsion 
to continually read over what you wrote either earlier that day or that week or that month and revise it and revise it and revise it. When whether that revision is you know a full scale revision or you're just moving commas around or fixing spelling, there's a I know for me, there's a safety in that, right? It's like, oh, thank God I've written 20 pages. Well, now I can just spend the rest of my life working on these 20 pages and I don't have to go any further into the unknown, this void that's out there that I have to kind of build this bridge of this novel across. And what I've learned and what I always, um, you know, try to try to uh, get people to do or to, to think about is try to resist that impulse, I think, as much as you can in a first draft. It's for many people, for myself included, it's really impossible to resist it entirely. And I'm not sure it would be healthy to resist it entirely. I think there's some benefit in rereading every once in a while, you know, what you've read, maybe give yourself a running start if you're having a difficult writing day or writing week. Um, and yeah, sometimes some revision, I think, can be helpful in terms of getting you to the next step in the novel if you know there's something that needs to be changed to get you to that next point. But I've also learned that many of the notes I have for myself um, or notes like in a workshop uh, like ours, it's better to just keep those separate. Just write those down. Trust that in a year or two years or however long it is when your first draft is finished, those notes will still be there. You will still remember them. Um, they won't be incomprehensible. And you can go back and work on that second draft and you'll have a million more notes once you read that first draft again anyway, so they'll just be added to the pile. Um, but it helps because I think the danger is if you spend too much time note by note on a first draft, your own notes, your own thoughts, you don't really know where the first draft is going to end. So you might be revising things that are going to be completely different or might be cut entirely or have no purpose in the book by the time you get to the end of a first draft. So for me, it's a much better process if I can get to the end of a first draft and look at all the notes that I've come up with along the way and then the notes that I'll come up with when I read the first draft and decide which are really relevant anymore because the, the novel you finish with in a first draft is usually very different from the novel you begin or think you're starting with. Oh, definitely. As we talked about in class this week, the very beginning, you don't even know if that's going to be the beginning of the book. You may just be writing backstory for a period of time. And then when you go back and revise the second time around, it may actually start 20, 30 pages in and you don't need that. Or it may even start 20, 30 pages earlier. Who knows? Yeah, I, I can only think of, I think I've only written one of my novels that actually started with what was supposed to be the beginning of a first draft. And even that changed pretty significantly. And, and pretty much everything else I've written, whether it was a novel or a short story, the, I found that the story started, like you're saying, 10, 15, 20 pages in, or maybe five, six pages in of a short story. There's like a running start. I think sometimes I use that analogy of like Shaggy and Scooby, you know, and Scooby-Doo, where they're running from the bad guys. And they have this moment where they run in place for a second, and then they finally hightail it out of there. And I, it always feels like those first five or 10 or in a novel, maybe 20 or 30 pages are kind of me running in place as I get up to speed and I figure out maybe who these characters are, who they could be. And then finally something happens and we're off and running and the novel itself has really begun. Yeah, I love that. I had never thought of Shaggy and Scooby as such an apt literary reference, but oh, I yeah. now can totally visualize it. And I think it's true. Yeah, pretty much everything they do, you can you can apply to writing a novel. 
We might need to do like a Mystery Science Theater 3000, like where you watch a Scooby-Doo episode and be like, now here's the point where you can really clarify the motivation for your character. Right. This is rising action. Yeah. Well, I mean, the other part, the other thing is, of course, that, you know, you get to the end of a first draft and maybe you have an ending or the sense of an ending or something that seems like it might be an ending. And, you know, one of the first things you want to do is go back to the beginning and try to figure out what the beginning of that shape now is. And the beginning that you came up with a year ago or six months ago or two years ago may not fit the shape that this book is starting to take on. So, so yeah, I think being too precious about, especially those first, you know, 50, 60, 70 pages of a first draft, we all hope that out of those 70 pages, there are 68 of them that will be used. But the reality is it's usually far less and they're revised pretty significantly by the time you get to your umpteenth draft of a novel and it's ready to actually uh, make its way out in the world. So the hot tip, the way that you phrased it, which I found really useful and gives a lot of permission, is to have a second draft notebook and that having a place to put these thoughts like, okay, I don't have to ignore this thought I'm having. I can just write it in here and then it'll be there for when I come back later and then I don't have to keep writing chapter one 75 times and never ever move forward. Right. That's something I encourage and I need to take my own advice because I'm a writer who is constantly writing in the same notebook when I'm working on a novel or series of notebooks. And so my notes for a second draft or a third draft are scattered in with sketches for a scene or for a character, or maybe I'll write longhand for a couple of weeks. And then I have to go back when I've finally finished the first draft and pick out all these notes. They're like pebbles in a stream that I'm trying to remember. And so I, I'm, I'm trying to get better about that, about keeping a separate notebook that's just, or a separate uh, document, Word document, that's just notes for a second draft uh, or notes for a third draft so that they're all in one place when I go back and need them rather than they're seeded in with every other uh, good or bad idea I've had over the course of a year or two. Yeah, but this, this is a perpetual struggle, though, which we talked about a little bit in class this week, is like how many notebooks is too many notebooks and how can you manage it? I actually had a thought about this and I'm, I want to run it by you. Sure. What if you kept your impulse to have just one notebook and it was like, this is what I'm working on, this is what I'm doing. And what if you had, this is so nerdy, if you had highlighters and like mm -hmm. whenever it was like, it was like green is second draft notes and I can put a little box around it. And like, if it's a character thing, I can do, of course, then you have to carry the highlighters around, but that is somehow less intimidating to me than having what could end up being like 27 notebooks. I like having all the notebooks because I feel it hurries me along my way to being a guy who's just going to kind of shuffle around my neighborhood with plastic shopping bags full of notebooks in the very near future. So I don't want to, I don't feel like I need to stand in the way of that. The highlighter thing sounds like a great idea if one, you have a pension for organization, which I think you do. I totally uh, do. And two, maybe if you have some sort of paid staff. Oh, I want that so much. Yeah. People who would just go in and highlight different aspects of your notebook, it, it wouldn't necessarily work for me. I would lose all of the uh, uh, highlighters. I'm always, you know, whenever I, I teach in a, in a classroom, I'm always one who has to like steal dry erase markers from the classroom next door. So I'll, I'll stick with my 12 notebooks and a plastic super king bag. But I think whatever, whatever works for anyone in terms of getting to the end of that first draft and not having to spend the next six months 
figuring out where all these notes, like where all your post-its or your bar napkins or wherever these things were. I think there is something to be said for coming out with a system that's going to work for you and then really spending time when you need to, you know, if, you, if you're a bar napkin note taker, once a week or however many times you're going to the bar, spend, spend some time transferring those into a system that you're going to be able to read and understand and it's all going to be in one place a year from now, whether it's a color coding system like you're talking about or a separate notebook or a separate file. Um, I think we can, we can lose a lot of good ideas just by being disorganized. Um, and, and I don't think you really have to spend too much time overdoing it, but I do think it's something that's worth uh, just for peace of mind, really, just knowing that, okay, I had a, I had a decent idea for a, a revision or for a scene. I'm going to put it here and I can trust that six months from now it's going to be here. Yeah, I think the trust is important because whichever container is going to help. Of course, I'm now visualizing like you have one plastic bag for each type of notebook. And I'm like, no, I, this, is, this is becoming OCD. I think really that the source of my neurosis is that I grew up with a dad. Actually, we were just talking about this before we were recording. Who, you know those cubes of little square pieces of paper? They're not post-its, but they're about the same size. And they were in like little plastic towers and you could rip it off and write a note oh, yeah. like when you're next to the phone. He kept his entire life on those pieces of paper and it used to stress me out so badly. He had his whole address book handwritten on those little pieces of paper and like shoved in the wallet. I was just like, oh my God, it's just going to get lost. So I think I want it like in one notebook that I'm like, this is my notebook. And then maybe that's why. I don't know. Maybe there should be a personality test for the, what type of notes you should keep for your draft. Right. And also it's worth you know seriously considering when you sell all of your archives to, you know, some oh, university yeah. library in 20 or 30 years, you want to make sure that this is all stuff that, you know, legions of readers can come and, and look at your notes in there, you know, they can marvel over them, uh, or maybe your shopping bags or whatever it may be. So you always want to keep posterity in mind, too. It's true. Well, there's the David Sedaris diaries, like he's got not just the diaries coming out, but he's got the illustrated compendium. Which, so you could have the, the Scott O'Connor like illustrated compendium with all of your shopping bags. Like this was, you know, summer 2017 was when I was really working with those, that target bag with the nice handles. But <laughs> then I moved forward into Marshall's and that really had some nice qualities too. I feel I am nearing David Sedaris levels of reader interest. So that's, you know what, you just never know when it's going to happen. Yeah, well, he, he probably didn't either. I know he didn't. Yeah, he was like cleaning people's houses when his first book came out. But I think the other thing too I wanted to talk about is how we've talked a lot about the things that start to freak you out as you're going through a draft and how to deal with them and that there's different directions you can go. So yes, some people I think are probably having lots of thoughts and need to keep them in notebooks and how am I going to have so many notebooks because I have so many ideas. But there's also the thing that you've talked about, which I think is really reassuring to consider, which is what if you get like 60, 70 pages in and you're not sure, like, oh, I had all these ideas and I crammed them all in and now I'm like looking at a large desert and I don't know what to do with these characters. But I really do think this is worth being a book. Yeah, that's happened to me every time with a novel. I, I just <laughs> I just wrote it. Only a every time. Only every time, and so I've, I'm going to, you know, take the scientific method and assume it will always happen to me, uh, and I need to stop freaking out about it when it does. But um, it just happened, you know, maybe a year ago. I was working on a draft of a new novel, and I got 60, 70 pages in, and those first 
70 pages or so sort of flew by because I'd had years of thinking about this story and these characters and sketching different things. And I had notebooks full. And then finally I got to this, you know, I always feel like you, or I like to get myself to the point where I, I'm taking so many notes on this. I'm thinking so much about this. I have to start it. So then it becomes something I want to do rather than something that intimidates me. And I got to that point and I started writing and it was great. And all these ideas are, you know, finally I can get them onto the page and shape them a little bit. And then page 70 comes and it's like, you just run out of gas. The, the vehicle just stops moving and you realize, or I realize anyways, that I've pretty much used all of my ideas in those first 70 pages and I have no idea where this thing is going or if it should continue going. And uh, that's always been a real panic moment for me. And whenever I, I talk to writers, novelists, I, I feel like it's a fairly common um, occurrence or a common experience where you, you do have this kind of sprinting start and then there's this dry period that, that really you just have to work through often one word or one sentence or one day at a time and just trust that you, it would be hard to write, well, I shouldn't say this, but it would be hard to write 60 or 70 pages of something that doesn't at least have the potential to become a full novel. I know there are novelists who have drawers of the first 60 pages, but um, I really think if you can get that far um, there's, there's probably more to it. It's just a matter of getting into the rhythm of it and, and immersing yourself in this world that you've started to create. And then just, you know, going, going one step at a time and realizing, and it was easier for me this time because I'd already gone through it twice before. And so I was kind of anticipating it, although hoping it wouldn't happen. So when it did happen, um, I was able to recognize that it had happened before. And I also made, uh, the belated, but I think good choice with the last novel I wrote of keeping a sort of haphazard writing journal. Uh, and I'm a terrible uh, journal keeper, so it's it's really haphazard. But, you know, even if it were every couple of weeks, just a little journal entry about how things have been going in the, in the writing. Oh, I'm up against a wall. I can't figure this out. Uh, the narrative is sputtered out. I'm 70 pages in. I'm 200 pages in. Or, or things are going great. I've had two weeks of just you know, great, really free flowing writing. And it was helpful to go back and look at that and just remember that in some ways I wasn't reinventing the wheel in terms of my own process. Like, oh yes, of course this happened last time and this is a different book. And so the process will be different, but at the same time, this has happened at least twice before. And I got through it those times and I'll get through it this time. And so I kept a journal this time. And so next time I'll be able to have even more evidence of, Yes, of course, you're going to hit these these potholes, you're going to hit these dry spells, but you you write your way out of it. And so I, I think that even if you're not someone who keeps uh, a pretty consistent or detailed journal, I, I think, again, like keeping notes in a separate notebook, I think it's worth just having a little file or another little notebook to put in your plastic bag that's just <laughs> how did the writing go this week so that you can look back on it and, and remember when you're deep in the next novel that um, most of these things at least in terms of process, have happened before. And what were your solutions back then? Yeah, and I think the writing log concept was also kind of going along with that. People have been saying how helpful they find that in the class, just keeping track of like, oh, on this day I wrote this much. And I find it helpful to note where I'm writing and sort of what the circumstances are because I find I'm many times more productive when I'm away from home and then I can't get sucked into things that I suddenly realize I love with great passion like folding laundry or other distracting activities that must be done right now. But I think having that log along with 
the journal is helpful? Well, I think writers tend to be, at least the writers I know, tend to be pessimists when it comes to the writing process. And so if you ask someone at the end of a week, how did your week go writing? They might say, oh, it was terrible. It was, you know, I was stuck. I didn't, I was spinning my wheels. I didn't get much done. And that can very often feel true. But the real truth is, I think if you keep track of, if you feel you need to, almost how each day went or each writing session went, however you're structuring it. When I started doing that, I realized that at the end of a week, I thought it didn't go well. If I look back on it, what really didn't go well was that day. And if that was Friday afternoon and I had a really difficult Friday writing, well, if I look back at my log, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday were actually really pretty good. And Thursday was maybe slowing, maybe it was anticipating this, this hole I was going to find myself in on Friday, but three out of the five days were actually pretty positive. And so it's, it's, a, it's a matter sometimes of tricking your own thinking into, no, this actually went pretty well, or, or okay, maybe four days out of five were difficult, but they, maybe they weren't as catastrophic as I feel this afternoon when I've had my fourth day of, of difficult writing. If I look back and say, well, I did write a chapter this week. It may not be a great chapter. It's a first draft, but I did get you know, the cursor on the page or the ink on the page, and, and next week I'll, I'll keep going. So I think it's helpful to look at what you've actually done day to day or week to week, because we can be kind of catastrophists in terms of, oh, things are going so poorly. Um, you know, I've just been, I've been blocked for so long. I've been stuck for so long. And then you can go back and look at the actual evidence. And in my experience, anyways, the evidence usually doesn't support my uh, feelings of, of self-loathing, as a, you know, after a bad or a, a difficult day. I've wondered about this for a while. If there is almost a superstition or almost a requirement that you adopt this kind of pessimistic, tortured kind of attitude towards it. Because when I think about somebody asking me and saying, oh, how's the book going? The thought of saying, oh, amazing, it's going great is kind of a terrifying. Like, are we all superstitious that if we say it's going well, that it'll immediately tank? Or it almost feels like to be a real writer, you have to be kind of dark, maybe wearing a black turtleneck, feeling sort of tortured about it. I mean, where do you think that comes from? Well, I think, like you're saying, there's, there's sort of a longstanding tradition of the public persona, right, of writers being kind of tortured individuals. Um, but, I mean, to me, I think it comes really from a sense of guilt that no matter how challenging um, or, or difficult or sometimes painful writing can be, I, I'm doing what I love to do. Like, I get to do what I love to do. And so when someone asks you how your novel's going, it feels a little weird being like, it's going great because every day I get to do what I love. Isn't that what, you know, you, you feel a little guilty about it. And so I think there's a, a posture of, of trying to make it seem like, oh, well, this is a, a cross I have to bear. You know, I have to write this novel. I don't want to. I've got to put in another few hours today and it's really torturous. And that doesn't mean that it doesn't feel that way sometimes, but I always think there's kind of an undercurrent of, you know, you're lucky. You're lucky if you're writing. I think if you've if you've devoted your time to it and uh, you've you've been fortunate enough to surround yourself with people who uh, are supportive of you doing it. Um, uh, to me, I think it does come from a sense of trying to like downplay um, how great this is, no matter how challenging it is. And I, I definitely fall into that trap sometimes because you don't want to sound like a jerk and say. Like, that's great. I'm, I'm living the life I wanted to live. Yeah, exactly. It also reminds me, too, of cities that are really great to live in when people emphasize 
crappy aspects of it because they don't want more people to move there. You know, like, oh, Seattle, it rains all the time. And then then I go and visit my stepsister who lives up there. And I'm like, you know, the weather's kind of great. And they're like, shh, don't tell anyone. It sort of feels that way with writing. Like, oh, it's really hard. You don't want to do this. No, no, no. Yeah, you're trying to cut down on the competition. Exactly. Exactly. So one thing that you talked about that was really helpful, now I'm just trying to get you to reveal all the secrets, um, were some exercises you had us play with. Like if you're at a stuck point, I think something helpful to know also is what kinds of things you can try when it doesn't feel like the story is moving forward and you're just kind of stuck. Like, what do I do next? I've run out of story. I'm 60, 70 pages in. Yeah, I think there's a, or at least in my experience, there's that there are a few things that I do when I get to that point. And I, I do get to that point a number of times during the course of writing a novel. I mean, one is just, you, you just stay in the chair and keep writing, right? Writing creates writing. That's, that's really the the basic fact of writing anything. So sometimes you really do just have to kind of squeeze word after word out of your, out of your fingers or out of your mind and trust that eventually they will start to gather speed and momentum and lead to something, lead to an easier path. So I think that's, that's one way. Um, but I also think that there are, there's a limit to that, or there might be diminishing returns on that sometimes of just kind of forcing yourself to do something that isn't that isn't happening, especially over a period of time. And I think for every writer, that's different. Can I do that for a week? Can I do that for two weeks? Can I do that for a month until I've got to try something else? But something else, like you're saying, often for me is a change of location. Um, you know, if I'm writing at home, I'll go to a coffee shop or a library or a park. Uh, if I can't uh, leave the place I am, I'll sit on the other side of the table or a different desk or facing, you know, even as something as simple as that, or go outside and, and write in the driveway or whatever it is. Sometimes it's just that change of, of sense, that change of location can kind of spark something. Um, and, and then the other strategy is to give yourself an assignment. And in that same second draft notebook, I'll often write little notes about need to know more about character X or need to figure out why character Y uh, has such a rough relationship with her mother or whatever it is, these little notes that I know I'm going to have to go back to or figure out at some point. But right then the writing's going so well, I don't want to slow down. So then when the writing isn't going so well, I have something that I can jump back to and say, well, now this is my assignment for today. I'm going to write about this. I'm going to figure this out. Um, Because not only do you often figure something out that probably needs to be figured out, but again, writing creates writing. So You've, you've kind of fooled yourself into thinking, well, I'm not really writing a novel today. I'm taking a break from the novel. I'm writing this other thing. And then hopefully within a day or two of writing this other thing, you know, you're, you've, you've kind of relaxed your mind enough that you can get back into the novel or you've sparked some idea or some new pathway. So, so I think keeping a list, almost like a to-do list for the novel, uh, along with those notes for your next draft can help when you have those periods where it really feels like the wheels have just completely come off the cart and the thing is not budging at all. I think I have gotten to that point with other books. I'm not feeling that way at the moment with mine. So it feels very far away, but I think there's still the thought about writing things that are not directly related to the plot um, of I'm not writing the actual book. I'm writing about this character's history or how did this character end up in this situation or you know, what, what are they trying to figure out or what do they need to talk about? Just writing something that isn't necessarily, it almost feels like it's off stage or off camera. If you're thinking 
cinematically or theatrically. Like having that permission that still addresses things in the book. And I think it's helpful to remember that there are all these things that go into writing the book that aren't necessarily transcribing down what's happening in the book. Mm -hmm. you know, page to page. No, when I was writing my, uh, my last novel, Half World, I had this exact experience where I'd written, I don't know, 200 pages, something like that of a first draft and then just got completely stuck. It was like, I just couldn't move. I, I, I tried for, for weeks to, to move forward with the characters I had and the story I had. And it just was not, I was taking all these um, pathways that were all ending up as dead ends. And I, I wasn't sure. It felt like I was pushing. It felt like I was trying to force this thing to become something that it wasn't. And I really didn't know what to do. And I was completely stuck. And uh, I remember we were staying at my wife's parents' house uh, that next week. So it was a change of location, which was nice. And I had a character who, in the first part of the book, was the daughter of one of the main characters. And she was, uh, you know, like uh, 11, 12 years old in the, in the beginning of the book. And the second part of the book takes place about 15 years later. And I hadn't really anticipated her becoming a character in that later part of the book. I thought that she was, her part was finished. And I just started to wonder, well, I wonder what, what she would be doing 15 years later. You know, she'd be almost 30. I wonder what she's doing. I had this vision suddenly of her as a photographer with a camera in her hand. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. I'll write about, let me just write about her. And I really had convinced myself that this was just something I was going to write for a few days to get my mind off the book because I was interested in who this character might've grown up to be. Um, and and that hopefully after a couple of days of writing about this, I could go back to the novel. And this couple of days of writing about her turned into really weeks and weeks of writing about her and realizing that that's what I was missing in the novel, that she needed to come back as an adult. And in the rest of that first draft and then in subsequent drafts, as the story shake really started to, to take form, she became one of the main characters of the novel and really the glue that held the entire story together. But I only discovered that because I was so stuck with what I already had. And I just picked this character that I thought I was done with and thought, well, let me just project her into the future and see where she is and kind of write her voice a little bit or what I thought her voice might be. And it really saved the book. Uh, and that happened a couple different times with that book. And I, but I learned from that. I learned that when I'm stuck, let me take another character and see what they're up to. Even if I don't think they're, uh, necessarily a, a main character in the book and maybe they won't be, maybe they don't convince you after that week of writing about them. But at the very least, the worst case scenario of writing more about a supporting character is just that that character becomes more rich and believable and complex so that in subsequent drafts, even their small part or relatively small part in the novel will be more rich and, and complex. So I don't think there's any uh, detriment to taking a week or, or however long when you're stuck on what you think of as the main line of your novel and taking another character who, who maybe you think you're finished with and, and just write about them for a little while and, and see if at the very least you can enliven the world you've already created. And at best, who knows, they might be the key that unlocks that door you can't get through. Yeah, I think there's something so important about being able to ask what if while writing the first draft and even later drafts as well, because it's like, there's this weird tension, I think, that I have, and I think I see it in other people writing, that on the one hand, we get to make up the whole world of a novel, and that's the appeal. It's like, you're making up this whole thing, and yet at the same time, we feel like we're supposed to get it right 
immediately from like the very first time we put it on paper. And it's like, well, if you're going to ask what if this whole situation in this world happened, like what is really the likelihood that every single word you write down is going to be exactly right from like minute one? Yeah, writers tend to be, and I say this as one, tend to be pretty uptight. I think <laughs> as far as artists go, and it's funny when you hang around with or you you know other artists, you know, like visual artists or musicians or, um, you know, actors. Uh, I mean, and everyone's different, of course, but they tend not to be, you know, like musicians will will play around forever until they find a song or a melody that they like and then go from there. And, and obviously, you know, painters and different types of, of visual artists, um, you know, are, seem maybe more free for some reason than writers. I don't know what it is, if it's just a particular personality trait that writers tend to share. But I, I know what you mean. You start with the first draft and you think anything is possible. This can be anything I want it to be. And, you know, there's there are no restraints on me this time. I'm going to fly free. And then a page in, you're already kind of setting, well, it can't go. No, I can't do that because that already goes against what I already wrote or what I'm thinking. And we, we, we impose these rules on ourselves. And I guess you have to in some way because you're you're creating a narrative. You're creating something that has to have its own internal logic, at least at the end. But, yeah, it's definitely a struggle of of trying to juggle the the more uptight part of your personality that wants to get things right. And then being open enough to try new things and take risks, which is where I think all good or great writing comes from. Yeah, it is. It's just the whole idea of getting it right. I think can be very like, I find myself going, Oh God, I just used another adverb like that. You know, this whole day is down the tubes. Right. It's been poisoned by, you know, I'm clearly not writing well if I have to use an adverb, you know, or whatever it is, your own like tick that you're trying to avoid is. Briskly did me in. Oh, briskly. Oof. I just feel like I'm not using the right word if I require an adverb. Yeah. But we forget, I think, especially in the first draft that we all have delete keys on our keyboards. <laughs> like we're not writing this in, we're not carving this in stone. You know, I mean, those people had real responsibility. If you were carving in a cave or, you know, on a stone tablet, like you had to get this shit right now because... You can't just cross over it and start over. But I mean, we have more than any generation of, of writer before us. Uh, getting rid of, of stuff you wrote is really pretty easy. Yeah, especially if you're doing like an ebook. If you were going to self publish a book, you can republish the file. And it's like <laughs> nobody even has to know. You could do this. I mean, it's almost dangerous. You could do it like every week, be like, oh, I've changed some things. I didn't like that character's name ever. I've changed it. New version. Yeah. That's why I sneak into readers' homes and replace if, if they have a copy of my book, I replace it with an updated copy when they're sleeping. It's like it's like the literary Santa. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, or the Manson family. But. Uh, with you know, it's somewhere in between the two. <laughs> but there is this point. So that's at the beginning, and then you get closer and closer to the end. And and how does how is your experience shifting once you get through the like, okay, how does this book work out, I'm stuck at 60 pages. And then what's the experience like as you kind of tip past that and then say, oh, wait, I can see where I'm going now. What can you share a little bit more about your experience with that? Well, it's, it's always a huge relief. There's that relief when you're yeah. stuck and then you're not stuck, um, which again, makes you feel that's why you need to keep that or should keep that log of how the writing's going because those days are the ones you have to remember where you think, oh, I, you know, I feel so great because I finally, I'm writing again, or I finally figured something out. And those are the days you want to remember because they'll keep you warm through the days where, where you're stuck. But I, you know, I've often felt, and I guess I'm trying to think in the experience of the three novels, at least getting out of 
those stuck points usually meant taking a, a pretty sharp left or right hand turn. That tends to be the point in a book for me where I need to really zig instead of zag, um, which again goes against all my uptight instincts about, no, this is the story I think I'm telling and we're going to follow this road to our death. Um, I finally, I need to like wear that part of myself down so that I'm just like, oh, whatever, I'll, you know, I'll try this crazy idea. And so that tends to get me out of it. And then getting, approaching the ending, I mean, my experience with endings is that I, I'm in a complete panic usually at the point in the draft where I know you can feel yourself kind of coming around that curve. You know that the curve is there and the end is probably at the next curve. You're not that far away and yet you can't see any of it. It's a complete blind curve. And so I, I feel a real anxiety because you think, where is this ending going to come from? But so far, it's just, they've just kind of come out of the writing. Um, that doesn't mean they aren't revised or tinkered with or changed in subsequent drafts. But I think the heart of the ending of each of the novels has always been there from the first draft. And I think with, or I know with each of them, I didn't know it when I started um, at all and, and wasn't even close to knowing it. I was always pretty surprised by it when it arrived. And this time, the third time trying this, I was a little more patient and a little more trusting when I hit that last blind curve of just keep breathing because at some point you will find this, this will, this will come. And, and it's a little too early to say it did for sure, but I think something did. And that's usually been my experience toward the end. I'm, I'm not somebody, we've talked about this in our workshop about, you know, writers who like to plan things out and writers who don't. And I, I think I tend to fall somewhere in the middle. I'll, I'll plan a little bit and then I'll wing it and I'll plan it and I'll wing it. Um, but I, so far I've never planned an ending and so far I've, I've, uh, written endings. <laughs> so, uh, I, I'll probably keep doing it that way until I can't do it that way anymore. There's a difference between not planning the exact details of the ending. Like, I think it's going to be kind of like this, which is sort of where I am. Do you have just no idea or do you have like, oh, I think it might go this way. I'm just wondering how winged, is that the way you say it? Is that how winged it is? Oh, winged. winged. How winged this ending is. I'm trying to think. So the first, with Untouchable, which is my first novel, I think I had a sense of, I didn't, I don't think I knew the ending. I certainly didn't know it when I started. And I, I think I started to get inklings of almost, almost a tone or an image, it wasn't so much a, a moment in the plot or the story, I didn't know the details of that, of what exactly was going to happen to the characters, but there was almost like a, like a color or a sound to it, if that doesn't sound too, too out there. With Half World, the second novel, I didn't know it at all. I remember the day I was sitting at my dining room table three quarters of the way through the book, panicking that it didn't have an ending, and then all of a sudden I saw the ending, and I just kind of sprinted toward it for the next few days, and that remained the ending until the book was published. Um, and so that was one of those things that just kind of felt like a gift that all of a sudden I, I looked out the window and it was on the front lawn. Um, and, and with this one, it's, it was sort of a combination of those two experiences. I think, I think I had an idea for the, the tone of the end of the book, but I didn't really know the particulars. And then when I was finishing the first draft, I, I understood more of the particulars, but I've just finished this week. I just finished reading that first draft after taking a month or two away from it. And it certainly needs work. It's certainly one of the sketchier uh, parts of the book in terms of much more of it needs to be filled in. But I think the I think the heart of it is probably right. It feels it feels close, if not there. 
So if you're coming to it and you're, you're kind of not sure of the ending, when you get the idea for a book, when you get the download, like, okay, I'm going to write this as a book, how does it show up? Is it like, okay, I've got some characters and they're in this situation? Like how far into it do you, does it go when you've gotten the first idea? I tend to let those things percolate for a long time. Like this book, I was something I've been sketching out and taking notes on and, and kind of trying things on for at least a few years. Um, and in the interim, I wrote a book of stories. Um, my second novel was something I started thinking about before I wrote the first novel and I wrote the first novel in the interim. So I, I feel like my pattern, I guess if I have one is that I have an idea for something that might be a novel. I start thinking about it. I write another novel instead, and then I'm ready to, to go to the next one. It's almost like I, I need, I need the experience of writing a book to get me ready for the next book. I don't know. I, I haven't, I guess I haven't really thought about that aspect of it, but I tend to, I'll fill a, I'll fill a good sized notebook before I'm ready to begin. And that could be over months or even years. Um, and, and the false starts I've had with novels that I've had to come back to and start again, um, they've almost, or I think they've always been a result of starting too early. Mm. Uh, I didn't know enough about these people or what I, what I needed to know or about this world. I didn't, I just didn't, I wasn't deep enough into it yet. I was still kind of in the shallow end and I was just eager to start something. And so, you know, learning patience as a writer is really tough and really important. And whether it's the day-to-day patience of writing or, again, of, of patience of starting a project, especially a novel, which is kind of a, you know, a, a, a years-long relationship or campaign, um, starting it without being um, as prepared as you can be. And I don't mean prepared with all the facts. I mean kind of mentally and emotionally prepared to, to enter this world and stay in it for a number of years, which, which is what you're going to have to do to finish the book. So did you have the idea for the interim novel? Had that also been percolating for several years or did that come out of nowhere as you were sort of percolating on the novel that you had to write a novel in order to write? Let me think. So Half World, which was which ended up being my second novel, I had started sketching it out and researching it and Basically, because I was spending so much time researching and kind of doodling in my notebook, I started another story. I just thought I need to write something. I need to write fiction while I'm researching and, and figuring this out. And it started, I thought it was a short story and it turned into a novel. So that was four years right there. Um, but by the time I was finished with that, I was ready to go back to Half World. I'd thought about it throughout those four years. It was that, it was kind of that life preserver when you feel like you're drowning in the novel you're working on. You're like, oh, but someday I'll be able to write that one over there, that that's the one that'll save me. Uh, so I was ready to, you know, I probably spent a year in between the two novels, again, sketching out and, and reacquainting myself with this world and these characters. And uh, yeah, I was probably pretty close to the end of Half World when I started thinking about this novel. And I made the mistake of trying to start it right after. That book had just come out. And I was on this weird mindset where I was like, I got to start a new novel. The book came out last week. Time to, you know, time to get the assembly line cranking again. And about four or five months into it, I just sputtered out. And I knew it wasn't the same sputtering of, you know, that we were talking about that first draft. It was really a sputtering. Um, and I knew I needed to let it sit for a while. And so I ended up uh, writing a book of stories in the interim. And while I was doing that, you know, this other book started to gather mass and and 
gravitational force, I guess. So by the time the book of stories was finished last spring, I knew I was ready to start this book. So I started it last summer. So, you know, they, they tend to come when they're ready, I think. And then the stories are coming out soon. Stories are coming out in February. And uh, I'm supposed to get galleys today, actually. UPS. Really? Yeah, I know. That's exciting. The UPS guy is supposed to come today with some. So we'll get to see it as something that exists in the world, which is always kind of a shock. That's exciting. I'm so glad we get to have this conversation. And I'm excited that you've got, you're kind of moving into this next phase with this novel and you get to have galleys at the same time, which I think has got to be validating. Like, look, this one ended up as a book. I mean, you've now got three solid books that you can lean on in terms of reference of like, I can probably do it a fourth time if I've done it three times already. Right. It's, it's rare that it happens, but it's nice if you're having a difficult writing day that the UPS guy shows up and is like, no, but look, you've done it before. There you a- go. Yeah, you've done before. It, it, it never happens, but on the rare occasion, you have to, again, you have to write that in your writing journal and say, today was a good day because it was, it was validated <laughs> a little bit. Galleys. Yeah. Galleys fix anything. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much. It's been really awesome. And I will see you in class on Tuesday. Yeah, thank you. And I didn't really even cough. No, no coughing. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.